Hi, Paul. Hi, Bob. How you doing? <laughs> you caught me by surprise. I know. I didn't do the countdown this time. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to throw some variety into your life because, you know, it's funny the things that go into a happy and meaningful life. They include surprise, surprise. pain, and suffering. And we will, get to, we will get to the pain and suffering part. And your book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. But first, let's uh, introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Paul Bloom, famous psychologist slash writer. For a long time, you were at Yale, but I guess with climate change creeping up on us, you headed north or for some other reason. In any event, you're in Canada. Where are you now? Toronto. Toronto. One of the great cities on earth. And what educational institution are you affiliated with? I am now a professor at University of Toronto, as well as still keeping emeritus professor at Yale. But I'm emeritus. That sounds like something an old person would be, Paul. <laughs> well, you hear I'm emeritus, and you're shocked at how young I look, and it's just it's just quite the effect. But yes, I'm, most emeritus professors are quite old. I bet that works well at parties. Oh, it does. I, Hi, I I'm Paul them. Bloom. I'm an emeritus at Yale, but I don't look a day over. I haven't um, been to a I haven't been to a party for three years, and even before the pandemic, I didn't go to parties. But yeah, I, I think you know. I, I'm one of those people whose lifestyle was not changed at all by the pandemic, except I felt less awkward, like crossing the street to avoid encountering people on the sidewalk. That's all. Now you have an excuse. Yeah. So um, let's talk about stuff. You've of course written other books. Uh, I guess the most recent one we discussed here was Against Empathy. Is that right? Yes, we did. Yes. Um, and, uh, you're, you're, you're an excellent writer. Your books are always a pleasure to read, oh, including this thank one. You. You, little... you are in this book in multiple places. You know, thank I was so flattered and, and we will come to that. We will, we will do a little arguing about Buddhism probably. Good, good. You kind of, you kind of took off the gloves there when it came to Buddhism, Paul, you're, you're, you're... Uh, good. Well, I, and you know, yes. we don't okay. take, we don't, I don't know if I speak for all, all Buddhists, but let me just say. We don't take this shit lying down. No. Okay. Just don't don't, I, don't I, fuck I, with I think, the Buddhists. I don't. I think that's a fairly common Buddhist sentiment. Um. So, I I think this is one of those books where it makes sense to tell the origin story, the book you originally had in mind, how that evolved, yeah. what the book became. It was going to be a simpler book. I was interested in certain puzzles of pleasure. I was interested in why people like hot baths, why we like saunas, scary movies tragedies, sad songs, um, spicy foods, BDSM, why we get a pleasure from pain. That was, quite a, jump by, that was quite a jump, by the way, between spicy foods and BDSM. We crossed, a, we crossed some kind of border there. But anyway, go ahead. I know. I just, I just tried to throw in BDSM <laughs> at, 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 at every point. Um, and, and so I was thinking, that's a real puzzle. We normally avoid pain. People say, you know, almost by definition. Pain, anxiety, difficulty are to be avoided, yet we seek it out. So I was going to focus on that, call it book, The Pleasures of Suffering, explore different theories of why we do these things. And that's the first few chapters of the book. But, but as I got into it, I realized, and this is a very, very old insight, that a lot of, of our desire for suffering and difficulty and struggle isn't in the service of pleasure, it's in the service of deeper goals. And, you know, meaning and purpose and morality. Um, and then I started to argue that suffering does another thing, which is it's part of what we see as a full and meaningful life. Um, you know, to, to take it back from the start, the book ends up 
if I had to sum it up in one sentence, is a defensive motivational pluralism. That there's a lot of different appetites that people have. And uh, suffering is a way to satisfy many of them. Okay, so let, why don't we start off with uh, what would have consumed more of the original book, which is just to talk about uh, why people sometimes choose what seems like uh, pain or discomfort or suffering and try to explain that. Um, uh, and, uh, I don't know, you know, I, it seems like you've got two choices at least you could have a grand unified, it's kind of a a fox or hedgehog thing. You you could have a grand unified theory of suffering, a self-inflicted suffering and pain, uh, and say, well, it's always this, uh, it's uh, like, it's always some Freudian thing or something. Um, or you could say, well, there's a lot of little little explanations that that uh, from from for someone like you or me we might say make have have make different kinds of sense in light of evolution if if one was inclined yes. to to explain tendencies in light of evolution now would you where would you locate yourself on that spectrum the second one the many right. not the one is that the fox or the hedgehog that is the fox the hedgehog just knows one thing the hedgehog uh, knows one thing. The fox knows many. The irony is Isaiah Berlin, who came up with this distinction, generally disliked hedgehogs. He generally disapproved of them. And yet his theory is a hedgehog's theory. But I, I digress. The whole idea of foxes and hedgehogs, I think, is a hedgehog theory. But I digress. So we should we should stop and admire the scholarship here that you know what Isaiah Berlin <laughs> felt about hedgehogs. I, I could go off on that tangent and how I, my, my, knowledge, my knowledge is very fragmentary, uh, but in this case, I know, I know a couple of things. Um, it's a sign of erratic reading. But yeah, I think that there's a lot of different stories going on. I think they're all kind of interesting. But no, I'm not going to say it's, it's a single thing explains everything. So let me give you an example of uh, something that has occurred to me. And I came up with a ready Darwinian explanation of it myself. And see, I'm not sure if this is in the book. It's actually been a, a, a few months since I read your your book in manuscript. But it's out right now, folks. Right no. now. Just oh, showed up yes. on Amazon. Yes. As this, as, as this appears. As this appears. Um, like when I was little, uh, you know, when when a tooth is coming out, you wiggle it. Yeah. And And to me... The and you press it till it hurts, yeah, and then you stop, and it kind of feels good that it stopped. And in fact, little tangent when I was little, for a, a couple of times I did this weird thing. I probably learned this from to- teeth being loose, but I took a spoon and I noticed that if you take a spoon and kind of face it toward your gums and kind of press on it, like it really hurts. And then, I, it, but I would release it, and the pleasure of the pain ceasing yes. led me to do it a few times. That's what, but. But anyway, back to the teeth. I, I would assume it's not, that- it's not it's not a total digression here. You know, my my dad used to tell me this joke um, about the guy who banged his head against the telephone pole, and you know, when asked why he did it, he says, "Because it feels so good when I stop." Right. And who would have thought? Many years later, that's kind of one of the arguments I make in my book. Sometimes yeah. we want to cause ourselves pain because the release from pain is greater than makes the whole experience a plus. It does feel good now. In the case of the teeth, I would think, first of all, if you ask, well, why is there pain when you push it too far? I assume that's because it can be bad for your health to rip a tooth out that's not ready to come out, right? You don't, 
you don't want to rip your tooth out. That would be bad in, in Darwinian terms. On the other hand, once a tooth is loose, it's probably best to get it out as soon as can be done in a healthy way. You know what I mean? It, it, so it's like testing the border and helping yeah. to loosen it a little until it really hurts. That'll, that, that, to me, that would be an example of a highly specific Darwinian yeah. adaptationist conjectural, admittedly, explanation for why you would do things. But and and you can imagine a world where every little, every little kind of uh, pain you inflict on yourself has its own separate explanation. I don't think you want to go that far. Though. No, no, it's not spicy foods has one theory and hot baths has another theory and saunas right. has another theory. There's there's more general things. You may be right about that specific example. I mean, you may also see it more generally as suppose you have a sprained ankle. What do you do? Well, you gently press on it. Suppose you have a yeah. sore, you poke at it. You know, and, and so we do these things. And I think there's sort of exploratory behavior mm-hmm. to see how bad is this? How much can it take? How's it doing? And also, in some way, there's sort of a pleasure taken sort of exploring the pain, feeling the pain in safe ways. Well, I would, I would uh, add one conjecture. I, I've noticed with like scabs, <laughs> people. <laughs> this is the, I, yeah. I know. I'm sorry, Paul. We should save scabs <laughs> till the end. We don't want people to bail out before they get in deeply interested in your book. But like, this, you this probe, should have your first trigger warning. You probe them around the edges. Yes. And I would think that gentle probing is conducive to to healing around the edges, right? Like. And then what was the other thing you mentioned? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> this is the strangest conversation hey, I have had about look, these topics. The, here, here's the thing, Paul. These days, when you do a book, especially one like yours, which will be justly recognized widely, you're going to have a lot of podcast conversations. I'm sitting here thinking, what's my competitive advantage compared to the other podcasts? You know what the answer is? Scabs. <laughs> Scabs. Yes. That's yes. why they're and, tuning in. And we have a title for the the podcast too. People yeah. will mistakenly think it's about labor law, but no, <laughs> scabs. Actual scabs. Um, okay. So look, why don't you talk for a while? I'm not, I'm not leading us down a productive. Uh, yeah. I think, I think it's probably this for the best. Um, so, so the hedgehog theory I would have for the pleasures we get from suffering. So there's different things going on. One thing is signaling. So sometimes we endure pain publicly to show others how tough we are, you know, I, you know, you, you see a bunch of guys together and sometimes, you know, to see who could squirt Tabasco sauce in each other's eyes or whatever yeah. and, you know, eat wasabi. Um, sometimes it's to show in religious context how pious we are. A lot of really extreme religious rituals do that. Sometimes it's a cry for help. Um, and I think some, some self-induced harm could be a cry for help. Say, you have people who will help you. They're not totally dismissive of you, but they don't care enough that you just tell them that you need it. And so you have to get, get more extreme. So there's signaling theories, which I don't have that much to say about. There's contrast, which I think is, is an explanation for a lot of what goes on, um, which is sometimes we like, we like, you know, we like a hot bath because when it cools off, it feels just right. Spicy food, you, you drink some beer, it just feels it. And there's sort of a temporal structure to it. Some of it involves the sense of mastery, which is really pleasant, being able to control things. Some of it, and here I ended up um, connecting to, to meditation a little bit, is escape from self, mm-hmm. which is, this is a theory that Roy Baumeister has about uh, BDSM, which is some of what goes on is that certain sorts of pain, sharp pain, sudden pain, 
can take you away from your day-to-day concerns, you know, um, and certain rigorous exercise does the same thing. I mean, I'll raise this as a question. I'm not sure whether, whether this is the same category meditation falls into or exactly the opposite. You know, my experience of mindfulness meditation, which we've talked about this before, is, is limited and kind of awful, is, is that it has too much focus on the self. And, you know, and so I, I hunger for the distraction of rigorous exercise or something like that. But I think mindfulness meditation in the hands of somebody who's really good at it, who's proficient, does give you a relief from the sort of self. Is that right? Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. You know who else uh, said that to me about meditate? Well, what he said was it seems self-centered and self-absorbed. It was... Uh, Csikszentmihalyi is the last name, uh, the, ah. the, 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 the world's leading authority on flow, which you talk yes. about in the book. Um, I, I think there's an irony about it, which is that the practice of mindfulness meditation certainly often involves paying very close attention to aspects of yourself, not only aspects of yourself. It can be things out there like sounds, but, but the irony is that uh, it ultimately is supposed to make you more selfless, uh, both in the moral kind of ethical sense uh, and, and, and in the, you might say, metaphysical sense, possibly ultimately lead, leading to the apprehension that there is no self, but we don't want to, we don't want to go there. And we can save our, our longer uh, uh, battle about Buddhism till, till later in the conversation, because I think the point you were making is, uh, doesn't quite lead us there yet, but okay. that would be my answer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think when I hear people who are serious about meditative practice, Mm -hmm. like you, like some other people I know, it sounds as if there is ultimately the escape for self, the recognition that there's no self and so on. When somebody like me sits down, sits his, you know, iPhone for five minutes and tries to breathe and then just welcome the thoughts that come in and everything. I spend all my time, you know, it's an awful, it's actually difficult and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I give an example in my book. The first time I ever was in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I sparred with somebody, somebody who was, you know, like everybody else there, younger and stronger than me and more proficient than me for the period, I don't know, two minutes, I thought of nothing else. And I realized afterwards that was two minutes when I wasn't thinking about, am I going to get this book done? And, you know, do people mm-hmm. love me? You know, I mean, how's my life going? Just nothing, just focused on it. And, you know, uh, so this is one thing, one, one thing that people reach out for, for, for pain and suffering. There are, there are others. There's, um, I talk a lot in the book about uh, imaginary, imaginative pleasures, like uh, horror stories, revenge flicks, uh, tragedies. And there, I think there's actually, for the first time, a true Darwinian adaptation, which is the idea that we are naturally predisposed to think of worst case scenarios. It's a lot of fun for me to imagine fantasize about getting a prize. But if I get a prize, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to say thank you and feel happy. But what about, you know, having somebody I love die and my house burns down, my job, I'm fired from my job. It's not pleasant to think about these things, but there's an appetite to do so for the reasonably adaptive reason that you think about them and you plan and you, you, you have contingencies and you work them out so that when the terrible things do happen, you're not entirely unprepared. And, um, there's actually some, some I, I discuss this very briefly in my book, but there's some lovely work out of uh, NYU 
looking at people who have a lot of positive fantasies and positive daydreams about things. Mm-hmm. And she finds, uh, this is uh, Gabriel Otanagan, I think. I may have mangled the name. Um, she finds that people who obsess about the positive, think about the positive, have less positive outcomes in life. And her argument is, you think about, see, it looks at people looking for romantic partners. You imagine having a romantic partner. You think about it. You fantasize about it. And you don't try as hard to get one. You consume the imagined instead of going after the real. Yeah. Anyway, so this is part of the story for why we like horror movies and tragedies, because we're after trouble. Huh. Yeah. I mean, there's also, in a horror movie, you know, there is, as, as I think you say, there, there is the moment of release from the fear. Yes. I, I mean, it's a, you can have the pleasure. I, I mean, few things in life are better than that moment when something you thought you know, you thought something terrible was going to happen or you were in mortal danger. Well, or waking up from a nightmare is a version of this. Yeah. And and going, oh, it's going to be okay. And of course, a horror movie get, lets you get to that moment without, to a version of that moment without the actual mortal danger. Um, yeah, I mean, this gets us back to hedgehogs, which is right. the, the theory of contrast also shows up sometimes in movies. So my favorite example is uh, John Wick, typical revenge film. So at the beginning, have you, you seen John Wick? No. Oh, highly recommend. Okay. At the, I'm not giving away. This is all in a trailer. But, um, but John Wick is a retired assassin played by uh, Keanu Reeves. And he has some random run-in with some Russian mobsters. And they kill his dog. And then the rest of the movie is he kills everybody. He just goes on this revenge spree. And that part of the movie is quite satisfying. The first part where they kill his dog is very sad. Yeah. But you'd make a mistake to say, you don't make John Wick a better movie. If we took out the beginning where to kill his dog, you've got to have that because that sets it up so that the second half is more rewarding. You know, in a little engine that could, his struggles are very, cause a lot of anxiety as he tries to get up the hill. But then he's up the hill and it's amazing. And you wouldn't have the amazing part if you didn't have the bad part at the beginning. Yeah. The, uh, I'm actually Googling the, uh, the oh. Death Wish is the is a, an original classic in that genre, yes. I think, right, with Charles Bronson. So I guess they just make one of these movies every 20 years or so because they're so gratifying. There, uh, there, there's a remake of, I think it's a remake of Death Wish with Bruce Willis, and it, it has yeah. the tagline, they came for his family, now he's coming for them. <laughs> and that's the standard rhythm of it. Bad thing, then good thing. Yeah. Um. So... Uh, let, let's let's move along the spectrum before we get into the whole question of uh, of the role of, of pain in a meaningful life and so on. So uh, things like uh, BDSM and self harm, which you distinguish between, which are two very yeah. different things. I think yeah. one you, in principle, approve of. Uh, one you don't, kind of. Um, well, maybe I've got that wrong, judging by your expression. But why don't you talk? So first, talk about. BD, so what? It's bondage, domination, sadism, masochism. Do I have the letters right? I think so. Roughly. Oh yeah, don't play innocent with me, Paul Bloom. <laughs> if, I know you, you. I know you know this world. If, if I open that door behind me, you see a full blown dungeon. Um, so, um, so, so, the question is, do I approve of it? Well, you know, one question is, is it pathological? And and one way to look at it is, is do people who participate in this subject to other mental illnesses. They're going to be depressed or anxious or more likely to be schizophrenic. And the answer is no. They actually tend to be a pretty psychologically healthy bunch in some ways, better than average. 
in her psychological uh, profile. Is it a minority appetite? Well, it depends what question you ask. You know, so yeah, so your average house in my area probably doesn't have a dungeon in, in the basement. On the other hand, the most popular book in the last decade from 2010 to 2020 was 50 Shades of Grey, which is fundamentally a fantasy about, about a, a sadomasochistic relationship. The second most popular book was the sequel. The third most popular book was the end of the trilogy, not to mention the movies. So there's definitely a very popular itch that's being scratched here. And, you know, so, so I don't approve is a, is a funny term, but it doesn't seem to be pathological. It doesn't seem to be a sign of trouble. Compare this to self-harm, like cutting and so on. You know, often people could, could injure themselves and often it's people who are unhappy. It's a sign of depression, anxiety. Um, and it's not, it's, it's not the same as more productive forms of chosen suffering. And what, do you have a standard explanation for it? For the cutting? Yeah. Here, here I'm drawing upon like other researchers. Um, and there seem to be a family of explanations. It's back to hedgehogs. But um, one thing is, and this is a case where it does blur into other activities, the pain distracts you from obsessive thoughts and worries, the sudden sharp pain of mm. cutting yourself. And, you know, you could see this. You get, one could get really mad and punch a wall. And the pain of punching the wall, suddenly, you know, for that split second, you're not, you're not upset anymore. Another explanation is to cry for help. It's a way to signal, it's, it's, you know, you're holding your body as a, holding your body hostage. I'm going to destroy your body unless I get help. A third explanation, and these are kind of all compatible, is it's the form of self-punishment. Mm-hmm. You know, we're moral creatures, as we both talk about a lot. Um, and part of being a moral creature is wanting to punish people who are bad. And sometimes we direct our impulse to punish on ourselves. You know, um, sometimes people hit themselves when they, when they get angry or when yeah. they're ashamed sometimes, you know, and, and, and that's another theory of what goes on. Yeah, that can assume a lot of forms. You tell a story in the book about a, a merchant at some bazaar in another country who felt so guilty about having exploited a naive tourist and selling her a a, a rug for for ten times the actual market value or something. That the, what did he say? The next day he ate no food and drank only I forget. Yeah, something like <laughs> it was, subsisted it was bad. on bread and salt. Yeah, uh, and and you know what occurred to me during that? Uh, well, I, well, I, that led me to start thinking about actually hitting yourself. Yeah. And it led me to think about this modular theory of the mind where, you know, you can, uh, you know, because some, certain forms of this, I would I would assume, come to seem like there's an internal struggle within the person. I mean, the person does the bad thing. The person punches himself in the face or whatever form of uh, guilty self-punishment there is. And it kind of goes on. And it's almost like, I mean, you probably would find it's different parts of the brain, but the modular, the modular theory of a Darwinian sort would posit that this thing evolved to, uh, you know, as we maybe as we became more morally conscious creatures, right? Something evolved to, to make you feel guilty about, uh, about things. And then for, for, for slightly separate reasons, I, I suppose there is, uh, Atonement through suffering is probably found in all cultures, right? I mean, yeah. uh, the, and so for that reason, maybe one form that the uh, one form. Well, anyway, I, 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 it's so speculative. I needn't go on. But um, 
No, you're right. If I could get angry at you and want to hurt you, what's stopping me from getting angry at myself and wanting to hurt myself? So sometimes we go through life as sort of integrated holes and there's there's at least the illusion of a single agent. But sometimes we could bifurcate. There's a scene in Tarantino's newest movie, we're talking a lot about movies, where Leonardo DiCaprio is very upset at himself and he looks at himself in the mirror and screams, you know, you idiot, if you screw up again, I'm going to... It's, it, it, it's played for a comedy, it's played to be extreme, but it's not so alien. The idea of self-talk that's disapproving. Oh, yeah. You know. No, I'm a, I'm a, I, I've been known to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go into details, but okay. I mean, don't you ever yell at yourself? Don't you ever yes. yell, you, you idiot? I have occasionally directed you idiot at myself. And is there, and an ever, is there ever an adjective before idiot? Um. You Gosh darn, darn idiot. You Gosh darn, darn idiot. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. That's what I was going for. Yeah, I, th- I think that we've already swore a lot in this. This is no longer a family-friendly podcast. No, we lost. Yeah, we lost. We, we lost the. Uh, the sensor will be under. busy beeping yeah. this out. But, but it does suggest, you know, there's in many ways we're at war of ourselves over, over time at a certain moment. And, and self-punishment is, is a manifestation of it. But this is in some way. It's an interesting issue. It is separate from my main theme, which is sort of the more positive uh, purposes of suffering. Yeah. Now what we're talking about the uh, you mentioned so uh, on this moral kind of dimension. Now here's a, a reaction I had that uh, you've no doubt gotten. I think you even engage it in the book, but uh, so you write uh, this. You know, as you said, you you have this. Uh, this pluralistic motivation uh, kind of idea. You write, I propose that there are multiple independent drives that normal humans possess. Some are hedonic. That includes sexual satisfaction, satisfaction of hunger and thirst, and even the right sorts of relatively low-level pain. Others are moral, including a desire to do good, to be fair, to seek justice. And, and, and then you say a third related class of motivations has to do with meaning and purpose. We'll get to that one. But on this uh, moral versus hedonistic, you know, my first reaction was, yeah, but there's a kind of uh, hedonic regulation of the moral impulse. I, I think it's uh, some Hemingway book where he says, uh, what's, all I know is what's, what's right is what you feel good after and what's wrong is what you feel bad after. They're, 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 um, they're, or to, 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 to take a more kind of mechanistic uh, example, one reason you behave, uh, or to, take the, to put a finer point on it, one reason you might behave in a morally good way is because guilt is painful and you'll feel the guilt yeah. and you don't want to feel the guilt or you're thinking about doing something and you start feeling guilty and that's unpleasant. And so you don't do it. So there is, I, I mean, I tend to be and this will, you know, if we have time, this will, uh, I, I can lay this down to Buddhist context. I tend to be a little bit of a, uh, I don't know if it's hedonic hedgehog or hedgehog, <laughs> how, how you line up the, the, the adjectives and nouns here. But, but I tend to think that a lot of the mechanisms of motivation, including in the realms you distinguish from the hedonic, have a, a hedonic element in them, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Um, I benefited a lot as I was writing a book with conversation with Dan Gilbert, who's a friend of mine. And, uh, an upfront hedonist. And he was, you know, the voice kind of yelling at me with objections. And here's what struck me as a really good objection to my the motivational pluralism, which is 
we have to decide what to do. And maybe I have to decide between, I don't know, eating an ice cream cone and watching Netflix, which is maybe fun, versus going to visit my sick aunt, which seems like the right thing to do, but isn't much fun, versus learning about uh, astronomy, which seeks the truth. But in order to choose between them, you got to put them all in a common currency. There's no way out of that. You got you to sort of give this a value of seven and this a value of eight and this a value of six. And if we want to call a common currency pleasure, then all we want is pleasure. And then everything we do is just a pleasure. Now, my response to this is that the common currency doesn't look much like pleasure. That in the end, it's something probably substantially more abstract. Mm-hmm. I never fully know how to argue with the cynic. And maybe this is sort of the role you're playing, who says, everything we do that's good and we see as good, we only do because of the satisfaction of doing good or the pain we would feel if we don't do good. But it always struck me as, in a way, deeply implausible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, okay, I, I have kids, you have kids. Presumably, we really want our kids to be happy after we die. And so we set up things in life. It would be, if, if it would turn out our kids would lead lives of terrible suffering after we die, even though not around to see it, we'd be, it'd be horrible for us. And so, you know, and this is something we want. Now, the cynic comes in and says, you just want that because that'll make you happy. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem psychologically plausible. Yeah. I mean, and it seems like, it seems like almost an evolutionary confusion, which is in some way evolution itself is a deeply non-moral process. It's just driven, you know, talking about Catholicism to the Pope, but, but it's just driven by, you know, reproductive success and so on and shaped our brains, but not that our brains are shaped. We want things that, that, that evolution uh, doesn't want. We want to, you know, we want to be popular. We want to be moral. We want to find truth. And I think that these count as separate desires the fact that the system that, that caused them to come into being themselves isn't moral mm-hmm. just shows there's a difference between, you know, what psychologists call ultimate causation and proximate causation. Mm-hmm. I just uh, realized that on Sunday I was involved in a kind of a challenging example here. So, like, I drove, it was like a round trip of like seven hours to attend a memorial service for a close friend in college who had died. And... There's like nothing about it I was actually looking forward to. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it's a weird setting. I mean, I don't, I don't know most of the people are going to be there. Um, it, it's, uh, I was, I did want to get up and say something if they allowed that and they did and I did. And I just dread that. I, I don't want to, uh, you know, and, and that's another thing. I did that. And yet that was causing me only yeah. uh, sorrow and anxiety. And now you could say that, and and at some level, this may be part of it that like you knew you would hate yourself for the rest of your life, not constantly, but whenever you thought about it, if you didn't go um, or if you did. And if you didn't say something, maybe. But there was definitely something, something else going on. Um, there definitely wasn't. Suppose somebody told you as you plan to go, look, um, if you don't go. I'll give you a drug or a pill or an operation. Don't wipe out your memory of this whole obligation. You'll never feel bad about it. Would you then say, yeah, now I don't have yeah. to go? Yeah. No, you didn't go because you did. It, it gets the order of things wrong. You don't feel bad after doing a bad. You, you don't do a good thing because you feel bad if you don't. Rather, you want, you're motivated to do a good thing. 
Mm-hmm. It seems like a terrible psychology that takes your motivation to spend that seven hour trip and subsume it under the same motivation in order to have sex or eat a hot fun Sunday. Yeah. And speaking of memorial services, uh, any thoughts on crying? Oh, uh, Lots. now? Yeah. Um, um, I, so. I, I mean, uh, well, go ahead. No, you're talking about evolutionary theories of why we cry? For example, or I, I mean, it seems to be one of these various, there's a couple of times when you describe multi, multiple functions yeah. for things. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, laughing is another one that I think you mentioned. Yes. Um, you laugh when you're nervous. You laugh, you know, and so on. Uh, this brings us back to the strange relationship between pleasure and pain that for reasons that I don't think I fully understand, but it's quite cool to discover this. They sort of blend in in certain ways. So you laugh when you're happy, but you also sometimes, you know, laugh when you're extremely nervous and stressed. You cry at weddings and you cry at funerals. You, um, you, you. There's a there's studies finding that um, that the face people produce during orgasm is very difficult to distinguish from the face people produce in great pain. And and to take an example, it got published in a magazine, Science. So it's very it, it's it's less risque. Yeah, when um, I first read that sentence in your book, uh, I wondered w- whether that was just your own research that led to that conclusion, or there was citations done. everywhere. Yep, citations. Yep. Just go to the back of the book. Citation, and it's paper in Science. Yeah, um, yeah, no, totally. You're off the hook. You're off the hook. Yeah. Looked at looked at people um, in sports events who had just won the greatest victory or lost, and so you see people like, like ah, and like this is, and you can't tell which is which. You, you, the facial expressions are indistinguishable. You know, um, we scream when we're in pain, but, but, you know, there's always these, you see the film clips of the Beatles and the, these, these girls screaming and the overlapping pain and pleasure is just really interesting. Yeah. So maybe we should get into this whole meaning thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah, talk about meaning. What 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 is the what is the connection between pain and meaning? So, empirically, there's a lot of reasons things suffering and meaning are what we perceive as meaningful. Things are connected. You look at people who say they have meaningful lives; they claim that they have more worry and anxiety and struggle than people who say they have happy lives. You look at countries where people say. Um, their lives are meaningful. They tend to be poor countries, which don't do as well, while happy countries are rich countries. You look at the, at the experiences people describe as meaningful, and they tend to be very positive, but also very negative. You look at the jobs people describe as meaningful, and jobs like being a member of the clergy, or being a social worker, or being a medical professional, difficult jobs that you know, involve struggle and, 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 and deal with the pain of other people. But the wrong theory, I think, is that we seek out suffering in order to get meaning. Rather, I think it's subtly different. I think we seek out meaningful pursuits. There's certain things we want to do. I mean, you know, I don't know, climb Mount Everest, have kids, start a business, do, write a book. And it's not like we hope there's going to be a lot of suffering here. If I train for a marathon, I'm not hoping for blisters. I'm not hoping for, you know, for exhaustion and, and, and failure. But 
we know that without the possibility and the presence of suffering, without the possibility of failure, the presence of suffering and difficulty, these things wouldn't be worthwhile. We want to do meaningful, important things, and we understand that such things are difficult. Yeah, I was actually shocked to hear, and you shouldn't take this in the wrong way, that you had run in an actual marathon. Uh, <laughs> what's, the, what's the right way to take that? <laughs> the right way to take that is, uh, is that I would be shocked to hear that almost anyone I know uh, read, uh, it's like what, 26 miles, 24 miles? What is it? 26.2. That's crazy. You ran in a New York marathon. If I told you my time, you'd be less shocked and think, do you let you go that I don't long? I don't think I could have, ever have really done that. I ran in like a five-mile midnight New Year's Eve run in Central Park a couple of times. That was about it for me. Um, that, that's, that's shocking. And, and so why, why, did you, why did you do it? That's a lot of training because you weren't – were you even a jogger? When you, you must have been a jogger when you decided to prepare for that. No? I, I probably couldn't run for a minute straight. And I just got into it and it was, it's, it's a good example because I was really out of shape and it was very difficult and, you know, I got injured and had to start again and, and it wasn't easy for me, but I'm very proud I did it. And I felt really good about doing it. I felt it was important. And I think the difficulty was part and parcel. You know, um, if it was easy for me, some people are just in terrific shape. You hear these stories of people who, you know, after just drinking all night, they say, hey, I want to run a marathon and they run a marathon. Yeah. But I wasn't that guy. And when you hear people talk about things that they value that are important, they'll tell you it's hard. Maybe there's an exception somewhere, but I don't, I don't, I've never heard of one. Yeah. Could be that's just rationalization for the amount of suffering they idiotically inflicted on themselves yeah 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 so the the, the connection meaning and suffering sometimes I mean, could be yeah. a rationalization one it, it would be pretty hard to say yeah this this having kids thing in retrospect that was a bad call yeah the last uh last 18 20 years of my life oh well um, so instead, instead you say well it was meaningful it was purpose it is meaningful it is absolutely meaningful so you w- when you 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 list some goals that you consider meaningful um, you say going to war, climbing mountains, and being a parent. And I wondered, who are you to make that call? Or what is what are the, what are the yeah. criteria here? Um, yeah. I, I mean, you know, in other words, I guess this is uh, who who's the brain in the vat philosopher? Is that Nozick who says uh, Nagel? Yeah. You know, it's Nagel. It's Nagel. Okay, so suppose you could just be, you know, in effect oh, living, in the, in, living yeah. in the matrix. Right. I apologize. This is this is. You no, thought I said yeah. bat, not vat. That's one of, that must have went on. on. What yeah. is it like to be a vat? Yeah. By Thomas. Uh, Na- no, the, the the brain in the vat thing is is the matrix question. Yes. You know, you, you're you're there's nothing actually going on with you uh, yeah. physically except that these uh, your brain is being uh, plugged into a simulation and you feel great. Yeah. You're very against saying yes to the question of whether you would trade your life for that if if it were super happy. But I got to ask, like, why is that not more meaningful? And let's assume that's a a life without pain. I I guess that maybe a better better question is, suppose they came up with a version of heroin that didn't have the downside. Yeah. Uh, Why not? And you're against that, too. But I ask you, why would that not be meaningful? You sit around thinking everything's beautiful. That's okay. Sounds okay. 
So I struggle towards the end of the book. I keep using her meaningful. And I say, well, what in the world do I mean by that? Um, and it captures, I think, the intuitive sense that many people have. So if I ask you, how meaningful is your life? How meaningful is this project? You don't typically say, buzz off. I have no idea what you're talking about. You say, oh, you know, I say, you know, I say, hey, you went for a donut, I hear. Was that meaningful? No. Going for a donut? No. I hear, I hear you spent 20 years curing world hunger. Now that's pretty meaningful. What goes into being meaningful is a few things. And these are things you don't get when you're in the vat. You don't get on heroin. It is um, purposeful, difficult. It takes a long time. And it makes a difference. It has a real accomplishment of value. So the person in the vat, um, in the experience machine, and Nozick is clear, if you want to believe that some degree of pain and suffering is part of a good life, you could experience that in an experience machine. We could give you whatever, whatever would give you most satisfaction, you would get it. But the thing is, in the experience machine, you might think you climbed Mount Everest, you might think you raised kids, you might think you helped people's lives, but you didn't do anything. It's, you know, um, if I wake up from a dream where I did all sorts of great things, it might have been a really fun dream, but I would never look at it and say, wow, what a difference I made. It didn't make any difference. I thought I did. And so the idea of a meaningful pursuit as one of its components is you have to make a real world difference. You have to do something in the real world. Okay. And is positive consequence for other people part of it? No. I mean, I, it's no, not because it, it you, you, incl- you include mountain climbing, which may not help anyone. Right. And I even in an earlier book, uh, Csikszentmihalyi gives the example, he's talking about flow, which is very related to what I'm, I'm talking about. He gives the example of Eichmann, the designer of the final solution. He says, was Eichmann in flow in this miraculous state where you get embedded and everything? And Csikszentmihalyi says, sure. He seemed to be really, this is a really good, deep project. He was focused on it. Is it a meaningful project? Well, if meaningful, if you have good as one of your um, criteria, no. But if you don't, there's no reason to think he, he made a difference to a lot of people, killed millions. Um, it took him a long time. It was a lot of work, a lot of struggle. And I think meaningful is not itself a moral concept. You could do something meaningful like climb a mountain, which maybe doesn't do good or does bad. You could really do a lot of good or you could do a lot of bad. Did you see the documentary uh, Free Solo, by the way? Oh, hell yes. I love that. Oh, so, that, you know, that's the guy who climbed El Capitan with no equipment whatsoever, which is just sheer rock. Yes. And, and almost the entire thing, if he falls, it's just vertical rock. He has no equipment. If he falls, he dies. Now, that's an extreme form of what you're talking about, but it's a form of it, right? Yes, it is a form of it. It, was, it took him tremendous dedication, tremendous focus. You see in the documentary that he has a girlfriend, and he has, but he basically, she's frustrated with him because he just has one interest, climbing mountains and climbing mountains without ropes. And this is what he lives for and he trains for. And whatever you think of it, it, it is something which seems to be loaded with meaning. Yeah. And, and that, I think, has a lot to do with the fact that it's extremely dangerous and extremely difficult. Right. Now, how much of this is kind of a time horizons question or how much of it is kind of how you did on the marshmallow test as a kid, you know, famous test where they actually came in. Uh, I guess they, they, these are young kids, I don't know, four or five. They put the marshmallow down and they, what do they do? They said, 
Now I'm going to go out of the room, and, I, and when I come back, if you haven't eaten this, you get another marshmallow. Song. It, it's about the delay of gratification, and uh, you know, I remember in the free solo thing. I mean, this guy is trained forever, and then he yeah. goes through this arduous thing. He could kill him, and then when he gets to the top, he just keep, he just keeps going. I feel delighted. I feel delighted. He calls his girlfriend. I feel delighted, and it's like. You know, and he's not a very emotional guy for yeah. most of the thing. Right? In fact, yeah. he, he seems to be a little aberrant psychologically, frankly, and and much more immune to conventional fears than the rest of us, needless to say. But uh, but he's in heaven. And you just wonder, well, did he just do the right calculation? This ecstasy is so profound that, you know, he was right to put in all the work and and uh, and all the time. Uh, I, I assume he would have done well on the marshmallow test. But is that is that part of what we're uh, talking about? Yeah, to do meaningful pursuits requires um, requires a time horizon. Requires passing a marshmallow test. You know, in front of me, I have Twitter and Facebook. I got Netflix downstairs, and I got a refrigerator and everything like that. Pleasures abound. To do something meaningful requires putting in some effort. You know. Csikszentmihalyi talks to us about flow. He says, flow is this amazing state where you kind of get caught up in something, you lose track of time. It's wonderful. It's very hard to get into it. And many people go through their whole lives without ever getting into it because you got to, you know, put down the remote and, you know, put, put down the, 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 the sandwich and focus on something or, or exert your body or exert your creativity. And it is hard. I push back on one thing, by the way, for free solo. Which is, if if he was doing all this for the moment of pleasure on the top of the mountain, it wasn't worth it. The math is crazy. I think he was doing all of that because for the rest of his life he looks back and he's the guy who free sold at El Capitan, and you yeah. know he's and it's that sort of deeper satisfaction. I talk a lot about this article by George Lowenstein about mountain climbers and mountain rock climb endurance climbers. He says they go to it's a terribly arduous thing. They have headaches all the time. It's exhausting. It's physically demanding. And they get up to the top of the mountain to say, okay, I'm here. Then they turn around and go back and try not to die on the way down. Mm-hmm. And he says, pleasure has nothing to do with it. It's more about maybe signaling, but also I think about purpose and meaning. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, social media. That's an interesting case. Uh, for maybe more than one reason. Uh, one of them is that people are drawn inexorably to it, and yet many of them have what would objectively seem like unpleasant experiences there. You see them, you know, just exuding frustration with some person who's driving them crazy, uh, or they or they do things they feel bad about later, or, or you know, it's a weird interplay in hedonic terms of, of yeah. gratification and suffering. I think there it's, it enters stuff my book doesn't get much into, but it's there is it, people call it an addiction, and it may not be a metaphor. It, it it may really involve the same. So so the addict at a certain point doesn't get pleasure from mm-hmm. the fix. It's just a release from pain. You know you don't see you don't see the smoker who's trying to quit like savoring the cigarette is lovely. Rather they need the cigarette, and if not they just crash. And speaking personally with social media, some days it's, it's like that. Where, where it brings me no joy, but if I put it down, it, it has this pull on me. Mm-hmm. 
So I assume you mentioned camping out in the book. I assume you would say camping out is more meaningful than watching a bunch of nature documentaries. Even let, let's imagine it's virtual reality nature documentaries. Like yeah. it's like you're there, but you're just sitting on yeah. your couch having the occasional Dorito. Um, well, for me, it is. I hate camping. It would require a lot of effort and work. And You do hate camping, even yeah, all hate. told. It isn't just the individual discomforts. It's like at the end of the, the week, you're like, that was a mistake. I... I don't want to offend people, but but I don't see the point. I don't see the point. It seems kind of arbitrary. Well, you know, this is a case where there's a lot of little things. It's true that there are, there are these moments of discomfort. You're lying on a hard surface at night. You wake up, you're freezing, something like that. Uh, you wish you could get a shower. Yeah. There are a lot of, but there's, there. Are, I mean, first of all, you're out. You, you usually, well, actually some people camp in crowded campsites, but it can lead you to be out in a, a kind of nature you yeah. haven't seen. Yeah. Uh, and then there, there are individual pleasures like building a fire. I find deeply gratifying. And and then there's something about the fact that it's a fire you built that you're cooking yes. your breakfast on. And and that's just one of those self-esteem boosters that you can, you know, d- which I would think maybe makes it not so meaningful. If it's just if I just want to go around thinking, oh, I'm like Bob Camper. Who the hell are you? You know, <laughs> so maybe I mean, you know. Um, I think for extremes, we tend to agree on what's meaningful and what's not. Yeah. But then there's all of these fuzzy cases where you might find something of significance and I don't. Um, and, and you're describing camping in a way that involves mastery. You know, you're, you, are, you, are, you have goals, you are working on them, you are surrounding them. My experience with camping is, is filled with less mastery. It's basically, you know, trying to set up a tent and ultimately turning to somebody else and says, you know how to set up a tent. And so, so in, in that history, that rugged personal history of, uh, of lack of mastery at camping. Um, connection with nature is probably part of it. Many people yeah. describe that as meaningful. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, so you are the guy who would put on the virtual reality headset and, and eat Doritos while immersing yourself in nature, but you would not call that very meaningful, I hope. I wouldn't find that meaningful, but it sounds perfectly nice to be able to like be on a sofa, you know, and, and sip some wine while looking at, nature through virtual reality. Yeah. That sounds very nice. Look, I mean, I'm again, I'm a pluralist. So, so I'm not being hypocritical here. There's, there's some people like I quote, um, I quote uh, Jordan Peterson and uh, Zizek at the beginning. And they both talk about how something like the, the one thing a human needs to do is find a heart, the heaviest rock they can and push it up the tallest hill. And I'm saying, yeah, I, I, I get that. I think that's important to realize, but it's a bit, it's a bit much in that, I don't think meaning and purpose is also the, 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 the thing that we should aspire to do other things. One of them is pleasure. One of them may be uh, truth. Good to know things. Appreciation of beauty, whatever. There, there, there's going to be a long list. But uh, it, so is it your view that it's either very difficult, it, that it's basically impossible to have a meaningful life without suffering? Yes just absolutely embedded in the phenomenon of having a meaningful life is having struggled in some sense of struggle. I guess my claim is with our common sense notion of meaning, and you know, maybe, maybe I'm mistaken, but the common sense notion of meaning says that if it didn't involve some significant degree of suffering, you wouldn't think of it as meaningful. Mm -hmm. Might be fun, all sorts of other things you might maximize, but you wouldn't maximize meaning. 
to the things we call meaningful. It's, it's yes. your empirical observation that they tend to involve yes struggle. Things- but but you're also embracing you're also embracing the idea, right? I mean, yes. you, you, you know, you're 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 got a little Texas high school football coach in you here. No pain, no gain, right? No pain, no gain is is um, yes. I I don't use the quote in the book because it makes it easy. That's what you're saying. But that's what I'm saying. I think people, I think people intuitively appreciate no pain, no gain. Yeah. There's, there's a, Dady, a Zadie Smith quote you have in the book. It hurts just as much as it is worth. Yes. Yes. That's a pretty strict formula. It's a strict formula. This was in the context. She's quoting Julian Barnes, who himself is quoting a condolence letter he saw. So this is regarding mourning and the yeah. significance of mourning. You know, I should add that you could take this too far. And I think some people do take it too far. I have a section near the end of the book where I talk about how we evaluate people's acts. And there's kind of a weird thing where if somebody does good, but doesn't suffer, we tend to discount it. Mm-hmm. So, so um, George Newman and Daly and Kane, two friends of mine from Yale, did these studies where they tell stories about somebody who works in a, in a homeless shelter and actually helps people, makes a big difference. But he's doing it for he's doing it to meet people and everything. No, no sinister motives, but he's really enjoying himself. They don't like that. People don't like that person. They prefer the guy who sits at home and does nothing. And there's a real-world case of this, which was the inspiration for their study. This guy, uh, Daniel Pallotta, um, he would raise money for, uh, for charities, for cancer and, uh, and AIDS. And he was involved in sort of in, in, in getting and raising money, but he didn't do it for free. He got a, a healthy salary for it, but was amazingly successful at getting in money. And when people discovered that he himself was making money off of it, they cut him out. Hmm. Even though, you know, from a consequentialist point of view, this guy's doing good. So yeah. sometimes I think we could fetishize suffering. It goes too far. Yeah. So I think I, I do want to get into this Buddhism uh, thing a little. Uh, I, I think, uh, but I first want to ask a a question that I suppose is in some sense a good segue, but it just caught my attention as an individual observation. You write, the duration of felt experience, our feeling of right now, is between two and three seconds, about how long it takes Paul McCartney to sing the words, hey Jude, everything before this is memory, everything after is anticipation. Um, how did you, who figured that out? Who came up with that, <laughs> with the two, three I'm thinking, I'm thinking Mark Whitman. Um, some, but, but some, some I, I'm just wondering, like, how would you do, how, how would you do the experiment? What, I'm just wondering what, what the, uh, that's a good question to determine the duration of con- what counts yeah. as the duration of conscious experience. I don't know. I don't know off the fly. Um, it's an interesting, cause there must be one yes. and yet it seems so seamless, right? Uh, I, I, that is to say the connection to the past and the connection to the future. It's, um, there's certainly an experience that something is happening right now yeah. versus, you know, in the extreme, something five minutes ago was in the past, otherwise in the future. How did, how do you zoom in on that? I don't know. I don't remember. And that's a great question. This time thing is so weird. Okay. So give us your, give us your, your uh, brutal assault on Buddhism. I don't, I don't and I will fend it off assault. with all the weapons at hand. I don't, you know, I will. I'm going to divert this slightly and talk about how a long quote I have from you um, early in the book. Oh, the tooth? The tooth. By all means. It was, um, so 
I'm talking about negative emotional experiences like pain and, 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 and fear and anger and saying, look, they're not essentially negative. You know, fear is typically negative because you're afraid of somebody's going to hurt you. If there's a rabid dog chasing me, I'm terrified. But the negativeness comes from, I don't want to get bitten by a rabid dog. The fear itself can be taken out of its context and enjoyed. And, you know, we're coming out to Halloween and, you know, people go to haunted houses. They enjoy fear. Mm-hmm. Pain is complicated. So, and the idea is that sometimes pain can be pleasurable. How I felt at the end of the marathon was I was in agony, but it was a good agony. If I felt that way right now, it would be a very bad experience. I'm having a heart attack or something. And so I quote you. You mean like the fact, I mean, if suddenly you start, your heart started yes. beating fast, you started and sweating. I'm sweating and everything. Like that. I said, yeah. boy, this just spells trouble. Yeah. And, and I, I can't put, I can't explain it and so on. So, and then I have a long quote from you from, uh, we were in a meditation retreat, I think. And, and I'll, I'll let you tell it, but, um, but this was, you decided to do an experiment with pain. Yeah. Well, I, I, my tooth started hurting on the retreat and that it later turned out to be an abscess tooth. And, it, and the deal on the retreat was any beverage of any temperature, uh, even room temperature, really hurt it a lot. Drinking water, if I let the water, you know, bathe the tooth, really hurt it a lot. So I thought, you know, and, and on a meditation retreat, you can get way better at meditation. That's a phrase some, some meditators would frown on, but way better meditation than usual. And you can just do a lot of things. And so I'm, I'm you know, probably day probably a week into the retreat. And uh, so I sat down, meditated for half an hour first in my own room, and then drank and just bathed the tooth in water and observed the pain. And it was definitely different than tooth pain would normally be. And, and it wasn't like there was no unpleasant feeling, but it kind of fluctuated. It, it, it was kind of like, oh, that hurts. But then I'd stand back and kind of observe the pain almost as like a majestic phenomenon. It was like, it was like, there's kind of a grandeur to it. It was kind of, because it was so powerful. It's yeah. like, it's like you're appreciating the power of the experience without feeling the unpleasantness of it. And, and you know, that's of course the part of the idea behind the, the, the philosophy um, involved in Buddhist Meditation of at least some kinds is, and 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 this is, I think, pretty deep in in Buddhist philosophy, is that, um, strictly speaking, all uh, all suffering, all pain, can be just a matter of interpretation. The yeah. the the pain is not uh, intrinsic. Um, the unpleasantness is not is not intrinsic. There's there's almost interpretation at work. Which yeah, I, and I see the connection with you you know, you're talking about the meta, the the the, uh, the you know how do you interpret uh, your your heart racing and and you sweating the context matters, um, but this was it was an amazing experience yeah. to really and I know a guy who's more accomplished than I am and he just to see what it would be like he was getting a tooth filled or something he just decided to go without Novocaine and I was like man I'm getting off the boat here uh, that that's like. Yeah, like you know, no, no, no macho Buddhism for me. That that that's a little too going too far. But he was, and look at the. You've got the famous example uh, of the self-immolating monks in Vietnam, yeah. as described by I think David Halberstam. Uh, they were just motionless. They don't. They scream. endured it with complete equanimity. 
go setting themselves on fire. And it's like, that illustrates the point. I don't think you'd want to take it that far, but it illustrates the point. So anyway, yeah, that's my tooth story. There's this line from Shakespeare, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Exactly. And that's an extreme version of that. I find that incredible. Yeah. Um, You were giving people the impression that somehow I'm like attacking Buddhism. And and I'm pretty you know, sensitive. I'm pretty sensitive. But but, so but what you at have the a end, critique. Yeah. So at the end, um, I mentioned it in passing in the context of this is kind of an interesting question, which is um how much do you want to meddle with human nature? How much do you want to meddle with natural selection? And um, so one example, for instance, is we have a moral sense, but um, but some people may want to deaden it. Some people, if they could take a psychopath pill, they would, because life would be easier for them. It's not a good choice, but they would. Um, Anxiety. There's sort of a a level of anxiety, which is really good to have. It's not fun to have, but somebody, um, you know, the the evolutionary uh, psychiatrist, Nessie, says, you know, we talk about people with too much anxiety, and they find them in, you know, in hospitals and clinics and their psychiatrist office. You know where we find people with too little anxiety? Morgues and prison cells. Because those people don't worry enough and they die. They get mutilated. They end up mm-hmm. getting into big trouble. And then I talk about Buddhism interest. And, 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 and the interesting thing is, and this, this is from you. I don't know if I cited you, but I should have. Um, which is in some way, Buddhism is giving the middle finger to natural selection. We have evolved to, to perceive the world as it pertains to us. To see some faces as beautiful, to see some foods as delicious and everything. And, and Buddhism, med- meditative practice, I guess, is in part designed to estrange you from that, to see things in some way as they really are. Is that, is that fair? Well, certainly, yeah, to see things as they really are, yes, and uh, stripped uh, of the various filters that are part of our natural way of being, including, yeah. I would say, some, some biases, some perceptual biases. Yeah. Uh, you know, including, you know, uh, unduly harsh judgments of people and things like that. Um, I would say, you know, it seems to me that, uh, you know, it, it, and l- let's leave Buddhism aside because it's strictly speaking, because there's, you know, yeah. Buddhism is a lot of things. But if you want to ask, like, what is the frame of mind you can be in after a 10 day meditation retreat or in the heart of the retreat, like day eight? I think uh, I would say it's kind of the best of all worlds. Um, I, I, I think in the part where you talk about Buddhism, maybe right before that or something, you talk about heroin or morphine or something. And I think the idea is kind of there is such a thing as becoming too indifferent to your world or too detached from the feedback it gives you. And I want to say that that's not the state of mind. You are extremely attentive. Um, It's interesting. There's a combination, there's a contrast both with heroin on the one end and I would say psychedelic drugs at the the other. I've heard people say, well, when you're really deep into a retreat, it's almost like uh, being on acid or something. And I say, well, there's one difference, which is that if, if on retreat, some big emergency happened, Like somebody suddenly on the retreat was, uh, you know, close to death or something. Some kind of rapid action was called for. If you're on acid, 
you would cope with it less effectively than yeah. normal. If you're on a retreat, you will cope with it more effectively than normal. And, and, and there's the same contrast with the heroin. Obviously, if you're on heroin, you're going to be like stumbling around, not doing a good job. I mean, it really is, uh, it really is kind of the sweet spot. Now, it's not easy to bring that back to the regular world, but to me, it's kind of a proof of concept almost uh, that uh, there is a better way of being. I mean, there's, I, I just, uh, I, I want to talk a little about, uh, to get back to Buddhist philosophy per se and kind of, you know, the, the basic idea of Buddhism and the Four Noble Truths, because it very much speaks to the relationship between hedonism and suffering. Yeah. Um, but for now, I would just say, you know, I, I think you're, you're asking, well, what if you become so indifferent to your surroundings? I mean, p- granted, part of the idea is indifference in the sense that meditation can render you uh, less able to be disturbed by your surroundings. Uh, and, 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 and in a way that's, uh, you could call that, um, an indifference and you, and you in the book, uh, worry about, I, I think, going so far that you wouldn't care any more about your children than you do about others. Um, That's right. I, and, there's, and, and there's a bit of self-criticism here because my earlier book about empathy, I really worried about my critique of empathy is largely empathy is biased and parochial. You feel empathy towards people you love, but not to strangers and so on. But one pushback on this, which I've always been sensitive to, is that some biases you might want to defend. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be embarrassed if I cared more about white people than non-white people. That seems like a rotten way to do things. But not only do I care more about my sons than about strangers, I'm not embarrassed about it. I think this is actually a reasonable moral attitude. And this is in some way inconsistent with my earlier critique. And then also, and you could tell me this, but the privileging of certain attachments seem inconsistent with some of the ideas of Buddhism, as I understand them, well, from you, actually. Wait, say that part again. The uh, Wait. Oh, whoops. Um, I was muted. Sorry. Uh, say that part. Say that part again. I got distracted by my mutedness. Um, the. Um, uh, so so the idea would be that um, that these attachments we have are important and valuable okay. and worth preserving. And right. my understanding is this may be incompatible with some of the ideas of Buddhism. Well, you know, it depends on how far you want to go. I mean, most of these questions like this are so theoretical because they would only actually surface. I mean, they, they, some people would say they would surface if you actually attain true enlightenment and all beings were of equal significance to you. Some people would say it wouldn't even happen then. But in any event, but Pretty much story, all of us are, are so far from enlightenment, we don't have to worry about this. Even, but go ahead. There's even a story I think you told, or you, this is somehow from you, about this guy who decided he's really going to get into meditative practice. I think it was walking meditation of some sort. And the idea is he waited until his kids left the house because they oh, felt was, that that degree was, was incompatible with, with being a good the, father. This is a guy named uh, Gary Weber who... It was a lot more than walking meditation. He's a serious contemplative. I haven't talked to him in a few uh, years. I, I, I mentioned him in my in my book, Why Buddhism is True. Um, and there's also on YouTube, uh, it's Weber, W-E-B-E-R, conversations with me and him. Um, he is, there's something, you know, I, I, I would not say that I feel confident that any actual human being has ever attained enlightenment in the strict sense. 
But Gary has he's he's in some different dimension from the rest of us. There's a certain credibility to some of his claims. And yeah, he said uh, he before going all the way. I mean, I think he thinks of himself as uh, he might not use the word enlightened, but pretty far along. He did. He did wait. Uh, and uh, until the, his his kids left, and I think he says that that he has gotten to the state you worry about. Where, um, I'm not sure. I don't want to put words in his mouth. People should listen to the one conversation I had with him where he gets into this. But yeah, it's a it is a valid theoretical concern if it's a concern. Now you could defend it. I mean, you could yeah. defend it on two grounds. First of all, you could say. Your kids are no one more important than any other kids. Now, you might counter that by saying, but with a pragmatic response, well, okay, they're not. But look, we have these living arrangements where like my kids are in my house. So it probably makes sense, even from a point of view of societal efficiency, for me to pay special attention to their nurturing. And and that's all true. But I would ask you this. uh, How many times have you seen uh either in your own life or just watching parents that uh, there is so much attachment that it's actually bad for the kids and bad for the development of the kids i think i think there's a ton of that around and-, and i've been guilty of it i've seen it in my household i see it a lot this is we're we're, we're straying a little too far from yeah. your book oh, i don't care it's, it's, yeah it's, but, but at this point um so, so you're right and that some people say peter singer uh consequentialist would say look if if Buddhism involves um, mindfulness meditative practices, involve you slowly abandoning the idea that the people close to you are special relative to others, all to the good. It was a Darwinian illusion in the first place that they matter more. Okay. Um, we're better off without it. Yeah. Um, Peter's, Peter's pretty intense. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, um, uh, that, that's a bit too hardcore for me. Yeah, I mean, uh, I th- I do think I will say I think the world would be a better place uh, if 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 all parents moved ten percent along the path to to uh, where wherever I was at that one point, uh, you know, at my best in a meditation retreat, if they moved at least that far. Uh, certainly, your average American kind of affluent parent or something, you know, be a, be a little less uh, clingy. It might be good for them. There is uh, now now there is. I, I want to get back to, to Buddhism, but there there is this uh, parenthood intrinsically brings us to your book from one angle, which is just like uh, we choose to do it, and yet it's very hard and 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 full of you know it's some of the deepest kind of pain you can have at times, right? It's yeah. like it's like if like the feeling that maybe you've given your kid very consequentially bad guidance at a crucial juncture or something. I, I can't imagine what I would feel guiltier about and worse about than that. It's, um, and, uh, and yet we do it. And what's interesting is that now we choose to do it. I mean, for a long time, the way natural selection got the job done was sex feels good. People have sex, kids show up. There would be, you know, there've been anthropologists who claimed that the people they studied didn't see the connection. Malinowski, I think, said that maybe about the Trobrian Islanders or somebody. But in any event, yeah. we know there must have been uh, in in our past. Certainly, uh, I mean, this is the way it is for the average uh, uh, sexual species, and and often that's the way it works with us. But the interesting thing is that 
often we choose to do it. What's your, how does that work? Kid case is fascinating. Um, it used to be sort of gospel that kids make us less happy. There's some classic studies by uh, Danny Kahneman and his colleagues where they give people like uh, beepers, not to use iPhones that just randomly go off. And, and when it goes off randomly, you say what you're doing and how much you like it. And these studies found that uh, when people are with their kids, they're not happy. Or just small kids, they're not happy. <laughs> they're, they're much better off when they're having sex or praying or with their friends, whatever. But but yeah. kids is like doing the dishes. They're just unhappy. And you and you sum it up, and parents are less happy than non-parents. As often happens with psychology, as more studies come in, it's more complicated. So the Kahneman finding might be right, but it might also be particular to the United States. Countries that have more childcare support find in some cases parents are actually happier. The non-parents, some of the unhappiness has to do with a lot of stress and, and, and the dealing with kids by yourself. But I think in the end, it's a nice case for, for pluralism because in the end, the value of having kids isn't that it was fun. There's probably a lot of fun in having kids, but a lot of misery. And it's there by no means clear the math is good. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, when I say having kids was like one of the greatest things in my life, I don't mean like, oh, you know, wow, it was a really pleasure engine. What I mean is that, you know, um, I feel that it was a meaningful thing. And I feel that I created these individuals who I have a deep and profound relationship with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing that you do it. And you look back and you can't believe you did it. But, um, but it does have a lot of actual joy yes. uh, of a kind yes. that's more profound than other joy. I mean, yes. um, you know, it kind of gets back to what's in a way, uh, you know, it's certainly a, a question embedded in your book is, is just like choosing your amplitudes, you know, yes. like, yeah. uh, are you willing to trade off except profound lows for profound highs and deep? I mean, profound. I mean, and there's, you know. a, and there's, there's a cynical view, which is, um, to some extent, our happy memories of kids are an illusion of memory, which is, you know, Kahneman also did these lovely studies of how we remember experiences. And you don't remember them by summing up the positives and negatives. Right. You remember them by looking at the peaks and the ends. And so when I think back on having kids, I remember this time, this time, this time, these wonderful experiences, forgetting the blur of waking up two in the morning to change diapers and the monotony of this and the pain of that. And, but, but our memories are distorted in ways that reward experiences that have a lot of sharp peaks and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And then we nurture them. You know, in my old house, I have a, a you go up the stairs and have pictures of, of, of being with the kids, you know, swimming pool, birthday party. We're all smiling and laughing. And whenever I go up and downstairs, I would look at the pictures, programming my brain to have happy memories of, uh, of my life. With them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting, uh, Point, but I mean, uh, so suppose it works like that, and you and you put a you put a gloss on it, an artificial gloss on it, on balance in your memory. Still, that feels good. I mean, yeah. that goes on the plus side. And who's to say it's not like there's objective truth about whether it was good or bad? Yeah. I mean, you, you, these were just your reactions as a parent, and they're engineered in, into you by natural selection. And and who's to say? Uh, so if you wind up managing to put this gloss on and think. It was all, uh, it was all wonderful. Fine, um, I'm in favor of that. So yeah. I, I want to uh, go ahead. No, I mean, but another way of seeing this is: suppose you do the math and you say, "Wow, that wasn't on balance 
uh, pleasurable. Well, so much for pleasure. Maybe that's not what you were after in the first place. Well, then what is the ultimate currency then uh, by which something um, can be meaningful, even if it isn't, uh, even if, say, there's no pleasure at all? There's no pleasure at all. It could still be meaningful. It probably isn't such a good choice. Um, But, you know, there's certain activities that are, that are, you know, I think if you talk about retraining for the marathon, from a hedonic point of view, it was a huge mistake. Much more pain than pleasure. I was happy when I, when I finished the marathon you know, many, many hours later, but, you know, on balance, was it worth it? Nah. But, but in some way, it's not like I dined out on it with other people, but I dined out on it in my own head. Mm -hmm. I said, look what I did. And I felt, I feel right about it. And you have finally gotten it into a book. Is this the first time you bragged about it in a book? As a matter of fact, yes. Yes. As Uh I, uh, I'm each of my book will reveal an accomplishment from my past. It's uh, (laughs) early spelling bees in my next book. So, so the number of books you write will be limited by your number of impressive accomplishments. <laughs> yes. yes, I got one more. Uh-huh. I know that feeling. I want to quickly just say this thing about Buddhism, which is that, you know, of course, the idea is uh, it, uh, the philosophy is caricatured kind of as life is suffering. The Buddha never even in lore said exactly that, according to the text, but said life is full of suffering. And the idea is... Um, that is often a product of our hedonic nature. You know, we are designed to pursue, you might say we're designed to pursue pleasure. Of course, the Buddha didn't have a Darwinian explanation of it, but you might say we're designed to pursue pleasure, but not necessarily to be happy. So the pull of pleasure gets us to eat food, have sex, and so on, and and therefore have kids and so on, and do a lot of things. But, uh, even leaving aside such long-term consequences of have, as having kids, the pleasure itself is designed to evaporate so that we will remain motivated. You know, uh, an animal that just lay in bed after sex for days on end basking in the afterglow wouldn't uh, compete well against the other animals. So the dynamic hedonism is, the, you know, hedonic pleasure, hedonic, well, pleasure is designed to be ephemeral. That To some extent, that is the source of our suffering because it means that we will almost always be wanting things to be other than they are. It's almost always on to the next desire. And to have a desire for a state is to be dissatisfied with your current yeah. state. Yeah. So so that, I mean, do you, do you accept that kind of descriptively as something we have to grapple with? Well, I mean, like you say, it's there where, where Buddha's teachings dovetailed very nicely with with evolutionary theory and evolutionary mm-hmm. psychology you know why do we have a hedonic treadmill why after i get something which makes me happy why don't i just stay happy well the answer is that animals that kept on trying outperformed animals that that, that were satisfied satisfaction is from the point of view of natural selection a failure a, a mistake i mean happiness is worthwhile it's feedback you've done well a little pat on the head you know, go do that again. But to be satisfied uh, would mean that I'm not striving. And if I'm not striving, it means I'm not reproducing and meeting people and, 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 and taking care of my kids and so on. So, yeah. So, so you know, Darwin and, and the Buddha converge here. Yeah. Um, so uh, what is your, uh, what is your, when you're forced to, to uh, compress your take home, your, your, your book into a couple of sentences? 
What, what do you want to leave people with? I want people to take seriously the idea that, uh, that we're after many things, um, that it's not just pleasure. I, I encounter so many hedonists, both in my business and psychologists, but also just people who I've met. I, I met people, it's longer to do this end as I guess, but I know this guy who's a sweet philanthropist guy, makes this his whole life helping people. And you talk to him, he says, people are just, is a kind of, people just want pleasure. They just want satisfaction. And our theories of ourselves, I think, radically underestimate ourselves. And then I want people to sort of take seriously the idea that some of this scratching somebody's itches requires suffering and pain. Yeah, seems to, seems to. Seems. Um, that, that's consistent with my lived experience. Um, I mean, a podcast is considered as the ultimate meaningful experience loaded with suffering and disappointment and anxiety. Yeah, that moment when I muted myself uh, and forgot that I had muted myself. We both suffered. I'll be waking up at night thinking about that. By the way, is it just me? This is kind of related. Are most of your dreams, or at least most of the dreams you remember, anxiety dreams? Yes. And, and psychologists have studied this. You put dreams on a scale of like uh, one to seven of a midpoint. On average, your average dream is negative. Not a nightmare, but your average dream is negative. And, and that isn't just the ones. It could be because. That was you, you remember. You remember is negative. Remember. That's fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but they could do the experiment because they could, they could wake people up in REM sleep. Presumably, there's a study uh, that corrects for that, right? Presumably, there is. Yeah. Yeah. So we will track yeah. that down when you write your dream book. And brag about the uh, your final accomplishment, the only one that remains a mystery to humankind, the only one that you haven't yet mentioned. I will announce it here first. Uh, ah, yeah. so you say. I'll bet you say that to all the podcasters. <laughs> um, so thank you, Paul Bloom. The book is The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. Available at Amazon, I think like at the moment, this is, what. what's the pub date? Uh, November 2nd. Yeah, I believe. Uh, is this November 2nd yet? No, but it, it it's going to go up on uh, whatever Tuesday is, and today's Wednesday, so it'll be it'll be something uh, remarkably like November second. So people should immediately go there, uh, even give it a good rating. Trust me, it deserves it. Thank you. And then you, if you want to rate and review this podcast, you could do that too, as long as you give the podcast a good rating too. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Five stars all around. Thank you for that. Uh, so uh, excellent book as usual. You're, you're, you're such a graceful and witty writer. Um, and, uh, we will, I'm looking for the, uh, stop record button so that I'll be able to, I can shut up any moment now. Okay. Yeah. I found it. So thank you, Paul. Let's, let's do it again before long. Thank you very much.